The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. We're going to talk about DSM labels. So how in the world do people get these labels? I've simply called this, I am my DSM label. I believe they called this in the the program, Counseling Systems and the Labels that Become Identity. So uh, what are some of the labels that people get? Just Name some labels. Codependent. So codependent, bipolar, bipolar anxiety disorders, schizophrenia. Schizoaffective. Uh, schizoaffective. That's an interesting one. Uh, do you remember the show Adrian Monk, the defective detective, and uh, obsessive compulsive disorder? He was diagnosed with OCD. So we're going to talk about where do these labels come from, and then we're going to talk about What are the counseling systems that are used to counsel those labels? And is the Bible sufficient to counsel somebody with one of those labels? Because you don't find any of those labels in the the Bible. Now, um, I've got a killer introduction to this whole topic, and that is to talk about my identity. So, and it's not DSM labels, by the way. So, um, I love studying my family history. It just really, really intrigues me. So when you look at me, you're looking at a Swede, believe it or not, a Englishman, Scottish, German, um, maybe some Cherokee Indian. We're still trying to figure that one out. And my relatives first came to the United States on both my mother and father's side in the 1640s. So we know the ships that they came on. And earlier, the uh, seminar I did earlier, someone went up to my wife and said, is he from Pennsylvania? And I think it was this brother right here. And that's right. My, I go back to Pennsylvania on both. And that's the second time within three months at seminars I've been teaching where someone said, is he from Pennsylvania? So um, my mother's side and my father's side are Pennsylvanians way back into the 1600s. We had relatives that fought, five relatives, I love U.S. history, five relatives that fought in the American Revolution, um, Civil War, etc. So now why am I telling you that? Well, that's part of my identity. That makes up who I am. And because that's my identity, it drives my actions. It drives my behaviors. So what do I do? I study my family history. Uh, There's a reproduction of the ship that my Swedish relatives came over on in 1638 uh, that's in Delaware Bay. Well, it's driving my actions. I'd like to go by there and see that, that ship. So my identity is driving the way I respond to my identity. And I think you probably get the connection that when people take on these identities with the DSM, then there's resulting ways that they think about themselves and the way they think about their behaviors. Well, I want them to think in biblical ways. I want them to think in biblical terms about who they are rather than a label that they they got. So let's think about where do these labels come from? And then what are the counseling systems that are used to counsel them? And is the Bible sufficient uh, to address it? So, now I need to go back. I was too anxious. So, I want to address two questions to begin with here. 
and I warned you, this is a little bit geeky. So what gets people to the mental health clinic? So what in the world gets people in the door? Why do people go to the mental health clinic? And then I want to define what is mental illness. And these are not going to be biblical counseling definitions. These are just going to be secular uh, definitions of what is mental illness and what gets people into the clinic. What gets people into the clinic is the same thing that brings them to a biblical counseling center or to a pastor for help, and that is I can't function anymore. So uh, in secular literature, when you read articles like this, and they're answering the question, what gets people to the clinic? They will use terminology like uh, clinically significant behavior. Well, what they mean by clinically significant behavior is I can't function socially. I'm not functioning my workplace, my family. Something's just not going right. So I need to go get help. So that's what gets people to the clinic. Now, what is mental illness? And I'd like you to look at some key words here, and these are going to become really important for my outline. Syndrome and disorder, and there's a little bit of distinction between those two in the literature, but, and this is the one that's used in the DSM, and if you're not familiar with this, the DSM, by the way, is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, and we are on edition five, which is huge at this point. And that's where all of those terms come from, like obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, ADHD, um, bipolar, uh, bipolar one, bipolar two, etc. So they call all of these disorders, but in the literature when they describe disorders, you'll see that the term syndrome gets mixed with that. And I'm going to define these in a moment. But the thing that's significant right now that I'd like you to notice is that these are disorders, not diseases. And I'm going to explain the difference between that and why that's significant for our purposes. Another very important technical term is monism. And uh, what monism means is that we're a single part being. So is that what we believe as Christians? So we're at least two parts. Some people believe tripartite. Some believe many, many parts. Tights. And uh, I believe we're at least two parts. We're a body and a soul. We're a material person and an immaterial person. But from a secular point of view, we're just a single part being. And you can hear the Latin in there, mono or only. So the term that gets used is a monistic worldview or monism. We're just a single part being. So just to get you thinking with me, if we're just a single part being, and what part would that be? material, we're just a body, then what must be the problem if you're having mental illnesses? Material. It's material. Your body's not functioning right. And so then what is the solution? Drugs. Yeah. The, the, the solution predominantly right now is medicine, psychotropic meds, because that's the only thing we know to do if we're just monistic beings. So I want you to think how beautiful the Christian worldview is, that we don't have like this myopic worldview, uh, we're just a single part being. We have a beautiful worldview that I think is more complete, which is we are not just a material part. We have an immaterial part to us. We're not just a single part being. And that opens up a whole new world of possibilities for helping people that come to us with these labels. And then I, I have a book given by the creator of the bipartite being that gives me insight 
into what's going on in the souls of these people. So I think we have a distinct advantage to help people that are coming to us with these labels. So let me read to you that paragraph. That's, and this comes right out of the DSM-5 desk reference guide. It says this, a mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by, and here's the term again, clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotion regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. Mental disorders are usually associated with significant, so there's the second time that word got used in one paragraph, significant distress or disability in social, occupational, or other important activities. So I can't function. Clinically significant means I just, I'm not functioning anymore. I need to go get help. So that's what gets people to the clinic, and that's when somebody is given the, the label, you have a mental illness, and then the DSM is used you, looking at clusters of symptoms. Clusters of symptoms. So syndromes and disorders, the definition would be a syndrome is a clustering of symptoms. So there's a clustering of symptoms. But here's the really interesting thing, and I'm going to be technical with you. There's um, a clustering of symptoms, but there's no known pathology. Now, what does that mean? Interpret that. There's no known disease. So the reason why, and they're honest about this. If you read the DSM and you read it carefully, they'll say, and you read all the literature that's coming out, they'll say, even though we've spent 30 years studying this, we still can't find the pathology behind it. So there are symptoms, and groupings of symptoms are given labels because certain people seem to have these symptoms, but we can't find the common and I'll use another technical term, etiology that's at the base of it. What's the common source of the problem? They go, we don't know. Now let me give you an example of that, and here's another very important principle for us, and one of my goals for this seminar is for us to grow in confidence in using the Bible that we have, I think, even more robust answers for the secular world or for people than the secular world offers because we have the book written by the Creator who tells us about our bipartite being. So we don't have a single part view of humans. And we understand that something did significant did happen to the soul. And there are significant answers for that. So syndromes are grouping of symptoms. There's no known pathology. So they, they're really honest about this. They say, so even though we've been studying this for 30 years, we can't call them diseases. But guess what? The culture doesn't know what else to do with them. So they use the term mental illness, which implies disease. But in the literature, they'll say, we really shouldn't call them diseases. They're really syndromes or disorders because there is no known pathology. Now, I'm going to give you an example of that and another very important principle, and I have it a little bit later down in the notes, that just because there is correlation, actually, I have it in my notes, not your notes. Even though there's correlation of symptoms, that doesn't mean that the causation is the same. So correlation, this is like a research um, mantra. Correlation does not equal causation. So just because people have the same 
symptoms that get this label, that doesn't mean that they necessarily come from the same source. So let me give you an example of this biologically from myself. So a few years ago, and you know this, right? You can go to the doctor and present symptoms, and the doctor can say, well, those symptoms could be this, this, or this. So the same symptoms are coming from a different cause. So these people are getting, and I'm, I'll give you an example from my life in just a moment, but these people are getting labels as if they're all the same, but correlation does not equal causation. Just because they have the same symptoms, it doesn't mean it has the same source or etiology. So here's an example in my life. Maybe 10 years ago now, I was having headaches. And like a typical man, I was ignoring it and saying, I don't want to go to the doctor. And, but the clinically significant disturbance happened. I couldn't function anymore. So finally, I got to the place of going to the doctor. And what do you think was going through my mind? I'm having headaches every day. They're waking me up in the night. Brain tumor. I could have a brain tumor. Of course, I start thinking the extreme. I have a brain tumor. Um, I go to the doctor, and I'm you know, bracing myself, and Rose is putting pressure on me to go to the doctor. And I go to the doctor, and guess what? I find out I have arthritis in my neck. So same symptoms. Could be a brain problem. I could have a brain tumor. Turns out to be arthritis, causing the same type of symptoms, different etiology, different causation. So when you're hearing these DSM labels, don't think everybody that has the OCD label it's coming from the same causes. They don't know what the causes are. Same symptoms, different causes. And what I'm going to present to you in a little bit is I believe that the causes are different than what the way the secular world would look at those causes. So um, I've talked about point A and point B. What are the worldview issues? The worldview issues are, th are issues are things like Monism, I'm going to talk about current research on neurobiology here in a moment, which I think you'll find very fascinating. I think it's really, really fascinating what I'm going to read to you. And then I also have there right at the beside C, keep in mind lenses. Here's what I mean by that. So as a biblical counselor, I'm looking at, so I, I like to think of what I do as the science of studying people, the science of the soul. I want to study Humans. I study human behavior. Why do humans do what they do? How do we help them change? And that's what, that's what people that study human behavior do. But depending on your training and your biases, you interpret the data that you're seeing different ways. So the question becomes this. Who has the best model for understanding human behavior? Is it a Freudian psychologist that has the best model? Is it someone who studied under Carl Jung and Jungian psychology has the best lenses to look at human behavior? And by the way, they didn't agree with each other and they wrote articles against each other. Did Abraham Maslow, does he have the best interpretive lenses? They're looking at, we're all looking at the same data about humans. That's why in the DSM, if you look at the DSM-5, it never gives prescriptions of what to do with these people that have these symptoms because the secular world doesn't agree with each other. There are hundreds and hundreds of theories of how to help people. 
they would never be able to get unity on what is the best treatment plan for OCD. They agree on these seem to be the cluster of symptoms. We don't know the pathology. After years and years and years of research on OCD, we can't discover any disease. There's no pathology. And I'm going to read you some interesting research on that. And we don't agree on what the treatment plan is. They could never put in the DSM a treatment plan because the secular world doesn't agree on the treatment plan. So I'll come back to you in a second. Literally, you could do this. You could go, let's call it Mental Health Avenue. And there's five different clinics on Mental Health Avenue. And you could present your issues or your counselee's issues, write up a case study, and you could walk into mental health clinic number one with a set of symptoms, and you could get a diagnosis, and they'll give you a treatment plan. You could go into mental health clinic number two, and so on. Might get the same diagnosis. I can almost guarantee to you, you're not going to get the same treatment plan. So I did an experiment on this when I was still teaching up in San Clarita at Masters, and I had one of our assistants in the office call five different mental health clinics in the Santa Clarita Valley. And we presented an issue. We told them we were doing a research study, and as soon as they heard that, they were all in. And we got total cooperation. So we're doing a research study on an angry man. This man has um, um, out-of-control anger problems with his wife and family. What's the etiology of the problem? What's the source of the problem? Guess how many different answers we got? We got five. So what's the problem? What's the treatment plan? We got five different opinions on what the source of the problem and what the treatment plan is. So what should you be hearing? Don't be overawed by all the labels that people are getting. Be savvy about what you're hearing and be confident that we, I think, we have an even more complete worldview of understanding what's going on in the human soul. Yes, brother. Exactly right. So the question is, I'm, what is, what am I saying about a syndrome? How do you define a syndrome? It's a cluster of symptoms, but they don't know the pathology. There is no known pathology. So that leads me to this research. This is going to blow your mind. So this is like hot off the press. So <clears throat> this comes from the Journal of Behavioral and Brain Sciences. Mental health concerns are not brain disorders, say researchers. So I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but I'll just read you one last paragraph. So that's the theme. Mental health concerns are not brain disorders. Well, that's like cutting edge for the world, right? I mean, we've put billions of dollars as a country into research on trying to prove the neurobiology of problems, that mental illnesses are because of things yet to be discovered in the brain. So here's what top researchers are saying. Quote, the thesis that mental disorders are brain disorders enjoys no appreciable support. Here's what one leading researcher from the Netherlands says. In the current scheme of things, explanatory reductionism is a remote possibility. Let me interpret that a little bit for you. Um, they're talking about reductionism, meaning biological reductionism, that everything can be reduced to a biological answer. So... Monism, 
Everything is because of your body. Well, that's what the world has been trying to prove for years now and spending billions on that we have yet to be discovered diseases in the brain. Well, these researchers are saying, in the current scheme of things, explanatory reductionism is a remote possibility, not a realistic research target. We do not have biomarkers that are sufficiently reliable and predictive for diagnostic use. We have not identified genes that are specific to disorders. So there's our word, disorders. And explain an appreciable amount of variance. We have not obtained insight into pathogenetic pathways in the brain that are sufficiently secure to inform treatment. If anything, we should wonder why the massive investments in research, research that should have uncovered these factors have not pushed back the prevalence of common mental disorders by even a single percentage point. After billions of dollars, uh, they conclude with this, and this is not a biblical counselor saying this, so these are secular people writing this, exact quote. Reductionistic biological explanations of mental health, quote, should not be understood as science, but as science fiction. That's their words. That's not mine. So don't say a, a biblical counselor said that. I'm just reading the research, and this is just as of March from the, behavioral, the Journal of Behavioral and Brain Sciences. So what I'm hoping you're hearing so far is don't be intimidated. Uh, Get a realistic view of what's going on out there in the culture. Now, how should we think about this as biblical counselors? I actually find it helpful when somebody comes to me with these labels. I don't ignore them as a biblical counselor. I find it interesting that a very intelligent psychologist or social worker or someone gave this person a label. They are very smart people. They have studied long and hard. They care about people just like you do. And from their training through their lenses, so they're looking at the world through lenses, they've been taught to give it this name. Well, I want to find out why did a smart person give Adrian Monk the label OCD? That's helpful to me. As a, it's data gathering for me as a biblical counselor. So I don't ignore the, the labels. I'm not overawed by the labels. I don't ignore the labels. And I actually think I have a better answer for the person that has the label. So, uh, again, part of my hope for this seminar is that we grow in confidence. Now, that leads to how should we think about the labels? What should be our concern? Concern? Well, people are carrying labels and they think they're diseases because they're called mental illnesses. They're really not because there's no known pathology. They think that they have an illness. They're being told the only answer is take your medicine, do talk therapy, and you're kind of stuck with this the rest of your life. I don't want to give, I think that takes hope away from people. I don't want to give people that answer. I want to give them an answer that Isaiah 61 says that my Lord, their Messiah, can set captives free, that he can heal the brokenhearted, that he is the Messiah to the afflicted, Isaiah 61 uh, one. So that's a concern. Num uh, a second way to think about this is realize that when you're looking at the DSM, and it's about this thick right now, the DSM-5 with all of these hundreds and hundreds of different labels that people get, 
No prescription is given. You will not find any prescription in there, but they are descriptions. Here's why that's important. Because you're not going to find OCD in the Bible. But you can read the characteristics of OCD in the DSM, and you can ask yourself, as you read six characteristics of OCD, you can ask yourself after each one, where does the Bible address that? Where does the Bible address that? Where does the Bible address that? So, and you're going to find, because I've done, I've, I do this with, I'm weird, I know, I, but the DSM to me is like a Bible of total depravity. <laughs> it's the Bible of explaining what happened in the fall in Genesis 3. That when the Lord says that he heals all of our diseases, I don't understand that to mean physical diseases. I understand that to mean Humans have a whole lot of soul sicknesses that go on. And the DSM is an amazing example of all the variation of soul sicknesses that go on. So when I read those bullet point criteria of these are the characteristics of OCD, these are the characteristics of ADHD, I can then ask myself beside each one, okay, where does the Bible address that? Where does the Bible address that? And I have yet to find an example where the Bible doesn't in some way speak to whatever the issue is that's being listed in the DSM. So think of them as not prescriptions, but descriptions. And then the last thing is, if you didn't write this in your notes, please think about this principle that correlation does not equal causation. Correlation, just because there's a correlation and people seem to have the same symptoms, that does not equal common pathology because they don't know what the pathology is. Correlation does not equal causation. Now, that leads to our second point, and that's, is the Bible then sufficient to answer these issues? So, I'm behind on my PowerPoint. I have a yes? When you were speaking of it as a, a book of depravity, didn't um, homosexuality used to be in the DSM Yes. So the question was, uh, speaking of the DSM, didn't homosexuality, wasn't it? It was listed as a deviant behavior until the 1970s. And uh, the, interestingly, the Lord had us in ministry near a, a university called Virginia Tech University. So I was a pastor of a church um, three blocks from Virginia Tech for 14 years. And uh, the Journal of Deviant Behavior was published by the psychology department at Virginia Tech for years and years and years where they were studying homosexuality, etc., until the DSM changed it and they took that out of the DSM and all of that research went away. So you're right, it was listed as a mental issue in the DSM until the 1970s. So is the Bible sufficient to address these labels? Here's what you're going to hear now. And that is that there are common characteristics to counseling systems. So no matter what the counseling system is, there are some S's. And I'm going to use theological terms to describe these uh, S's, our terms. But they would apply to any counseling system. So let me just, I'll try to ease you into this lightly. Freud did not agree with Jung, who did not agree with Abraham Maslow who did not agree with Alfred Adler. They all had different counseling systems. They all studied humans. They all saw the same data. They saw humans are weird, and we do weird things, and we're really goofed up, and we need help. And they're all looking at humans, 
and trying to help them, but because of worldview issues, lenses, they interpret it differently and come up with different treatment plans. The way Freud interpreted human problems was different than Ad Adler, who was different than Abraham Maslow, which is different than biblical counseling, the way that we see humans and their problems. But we have a complete counseling system. Uh, I think we have a deeper, richer, ro ro more robust counseling system than anything that is out in the secular world. And I'll explain that, why I believe that in just a moment. And yes, I am a prejudiced biblical counselor, unashamedly. So what are the characteristics of a counseling system? Uh, I'm not going to go through all the details. You can read back through your notes. But counseling systems have a view of where do you get information from, a source of authority. So I'm going to give you another geeky word, epistemology. Epistemology. Epistemology is the study of the authority of knowledge. Every belief system has a source of knowledge. You have to have some kind of standard to go by. So the standard of information for Islam is what? The standard of information for Christianity is what? So as Alfred Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, says, we are people of the book. We're people of the book. We're people of the Bible. Every counseling system has a source of authority. So you could put a couple of questions beside this. Who or what gets quoted? Who or what gets quoted to support Adler, to support Maslow, to support B.F. Skinner? So I'm giving you just two examples, uh, and there could be hundreds, literally. But Skinner was known for his behaviorism. Well, who's the authority? Skinner. He's the source of authority. He's the one that gets quoted because it's his theory. Well, interestingly, uh, and I have a little bit of this in the notes, but do some more research on your own. Uh, Skinner was heavily influenced by a guy named Charles Darwin. And it's an easy connection to make if you start studying Skinner. Well, what's Darwin known for? Evolution. So Skinner would say, what Darwin did for biology I want to do for psychology. So he believed that you were advanced animals and you need to be retrained. You were trained wrong. And maybe you remember studying in high school psychology or college psychology class about Pavlov's dogs and ringing the bell and salivating. You remember all that? Yep. Well, that goes along with Skinner's behaviorism because Skinner was directly influenced by Charles Darwin. And what I'm hoping you're hearing here is there's a whole lot of worldview issues. There's a whole lot of philosophy issues that are going behind all these psychological labels and counseling systems. Well, we have a whole worldview, too. And I think it's better than anything that the secular world has to offer. So the medical model, what do they quote? What's the latest brain research? What's our source of authority? Praise God. Our source of authority one more click, is Scripture. And uh, we haven't opened our Bibles yet, so we're going to do that right now. And I'd like you to look at a, some beautiful Scripture. 2 Timothy 3. And uh, I know you know these verses. And I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. 
The point I'm trying to make in this second part of the presentation is we have a complete counseling system. Just like cognitive behavioral psychology is a counseling system, just like Abraham Maslow presented a counseling system, just like Sigmund Freud presented a counseling system, biblical counseling is presenting a complete counseling system. We have all of the ingredients of a counseling system. So when people come to us with these labels, we have a complete counseling system to deal with the label. They get those labels and they can go to a cognitive behavioral therapist and they're going to practice their counseling system on the person. They can come to us with the label and we can practice our counseling system on the person. We have a complete counseling system. So 2 Timothy 3, beautiful verses. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That the man of God may be Here's how you could translate the word, and I'm reading New American Standard. The word adequate is capable of meeting all demands. So, equipped, completely outfitted, thoroughly furnished, I think King James says. So let me put that all together. All Scripture is God-breathed. So we're holding a living document. It's not just history uh, recording words that God had men write down 2,000 years ago and before. We believe in the doctrine of inspiration, which means this is the living Word of God. Hebrews 4.12. It is God-breathed. It is His breath. It's alive. So it's the Word of God that's alive. And so that's the word inspired. And it's profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And why? So that the man of God may be capable of meeting all demands and completely outfitted and thoroughly furnished for every good work. That sounds like a sufficiency of scripture verse to me. So that no matter what life throws my way, I can have wisdom from the living word of God on how do I handle that uh, issue. So that's our source of authority. So we have an incredible source of authority uh, the doctrine of inerrancy, I, I've often said to classes at Masters, and when I've taught this in various places, I am a biblical counselor because of the doctrine of inerrancy. So if you're not familiar with the doctrine of inerrancy, you need to learn about the doctrine of inerrancy. But inerrancy is basically this. Inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs and correctly <coughs> interpreted is entirely true and never false in all it affirms. Not just spiritual stuff like salvation. But everything, whether it's doctrine or ethics, social, physical, or life sciences. Well, what we do as biblical counselors is the social sciences. We study humans. What's wrong with humans? How do you help them change? We're looking for biblical answers to those questions, and I believe we have them. So, or whether I could add here, whether it's history. The Bible is always accurate in history, not just spiritual stuff. The doctrine of inerrancy is no matter what the subject is that the Bible touches on, it's the authority and it's accurate in all that it teaches. So because of the doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy, I believe we have an incredible source of authority. So I meant to say this at the beginning, but just recently the, the Lord in his mysterious Providence decided to take a very important person home to be with him, and his name is David Pallison. 
Um, I learned this thinking, these S's, I learned from David Pallison. So I wanted to dedicate this uh, in memory of him. He had a very significant, he was one of my professors at Westminster Seminary East in Philadelphia. Had a profound impact, not just on me intellectually, uh, but on me spiritually and learning how to live uh, for the Lord and live as a worshiper. So um, I loved to hear David Pallison pray, but I also loved him hear him talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. And one of my most memorable things from an ACBC conference is David Pallison standing in front of us talking about the beauty of biblical counseling and the counseling system we had. And he says, we don't sing hymns to Sigmund Freud. We do not sing the mighty power of Sigmund Freud. We do not sing the mighty power of Alfred Adler. We sing the mighty power of God. And uh, I believe that we have a, a counseling system. It's 2,000 years old. You can never exhaust it. What the church has been teaching about humans, why humans have problems, is 2,000 years old. And we have a book that I've been studying the Bible for over 40 years now, very seriously, and I can't exhaust the truths of Scripture uh, about humans. I feel like I'm studying a, a gold mine, and I just keep finding more and more truth about humans and how to help uh, humans change. So every counseling system has a source of authority. Let's go to the next one. Every counseling system has a view of what's wrong. So I'm using our term, sin. Now, interestingly... Interestingly, even the secular world sometimes will use that word. Like, what's wrong with humans? There was a famous uh, psychiatrist, maybe you remember him from the 1960s, or you've heard his um, name, Menninger. And uh, Menninger wrote a book back in the 60s called Whatever Happened to Sin? And he was a secular psychiatrist who was asking our culture, what happened to the idea of sin in our culture? Not related to the Bible at all, just we used to believe that there was right and wrong. Well, biblical counseling is saying Genesis 3 had a very significant impact on us. It's not that everything is because of your personal sin. You are also sinned against. So other people have been impacted by Genesis 3. So you become the victim of their actions. So we are sinners and we are sinned against. But I find that that is not specific enough. So I'm going to explain even more nuanced what I mean by sin. What do we see as the problem? But there are secular views, hundreds of different views. The, the, the geeky word here would be etiology, etiology, E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y, uh, E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y, etiology. That means what's the source of the problem. Every counseling system has a view of, okay, why do humans do what they do? I'll give you an example that's not up here on the board, and you'll get it. So, Abraham Maslow, what's he known for? Hierarchy of needs. So, why do humans have the problems that they do? You haven't achieved. Your needs haven't been met. You can't go up the hierarchy and reach self-actualization until your more basic needs are met. So, anytime you hear the word need... In a counseling theory, you ought to be thinking of a person named Abraham Maslow because he's the one that really made that popular. His view of etiology is we're needy. We have needs that aren't being met. Well, that was not Sigmund Freud's view. 
That was not Carl Jung's view. That was not Alfred Adler's view. And they actually wrote articles against each other in journals, and some of them did not like each other at all. They were enemies. They thought that their systems were competing with one another. So behaviorism's view is different than Maslow's view. So Skinner's view is different than Maslow's view, which is different than the medical model's view, which is it's your genetics and your brain chemistry because you're only a monistic being. You don't have a soul. So it must be your body that's having a problem. And if it's just your body, we're going to treat it with medicine to try to correct whatever the disease is. Well, what's our view? It's not just that we do bad things. I believe, and I learned this from David Pallison as well, our view of the Bible is we're image bearers, who are worshipers, but the fall in Genesis 3 changes everything, and Romans 1.25 says we worship and serve the creation rather than the, the creator. So we have a word. I, I see the counseling problems I see in com, coming into our counseling center in Jacksonville, Florida, I believe many of them are worship disorders. They originate in the, the heart. What is going on in the worship center? What are people treasuring? What are they hoping in? What are they valuing? What is the person loving? We have a pretty deep view of what's going on with humans. And going back to David Pallison again, he's the one that brought that to biblical counseling. So um, if you've ever heard of the three trees diagram and have ever been taught the three trees diagram, David Pallison's the one that originated the three trees diagram. And the whole idea that we are worshipers enslaved to our lusts and pleasures um, that Paul Tripp has made popular in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. That actually originated with David Pallison and Paul Tripp and Ed Welch as they brainstormed together uh, what is going on, what's going on with humans. So the whole subject of human motivation, how do we help humans, that's something that David Pallison put a whole lot of thought into. Well, if, if I want to be a doctor of the soul. Have you ever been to the doctor and got a wrong diagnosis that led to a wrong treatment plan. That's happened to, with, in our family with our daughter who has uh, some kind of nerve issue. We still can't figure out what the etiology is, what's the source of the problem. And she got diagnosed. We spent a lot of time on treatment plans, and one of the treatment plans actually made the issue worse. It didn't solve it. So if I'm going to be a doctor of the soul, I've got to get the diagnosis right. Right? Does that make sense? I've got to get the diagnosis right so that I give the right treatment plan. So this question is really important. What's going on with humans? Why do humans do the goofy things that they do? You know, what's going on in our souls? What's going on in our minds? How is the mind and the soul all, all connected? And then how do we help people then change? So if I want to give a proper treatment plan, I've got to get the diagnosis Right. Well, I actually believe that the diagnosis is we got we have worship disorders. So let's keep going. And uh, I'm going to skip through a bunch of slides because I know some of that's review, and that is that we're living out of our hearts. So I have some slides about. And don't even you're going to get seasick if you try to write down everything you're about to see on the screen. So don't even try. If you want to see it later, I can give it to you. So the heart basically is the mind, the will, the emotions, and the desires. So I want to get at heart issues with people. What is the worship that's going on? 
That leads then to the next S. Once you figure out what's the etiology, the source of the problem, we then want to propose a, as my friend Bob Kellerman would say, a solution. So what's the solution for people? So what's the solution? Every counseling system proposes different solutions. Just to reinforce this, Freud proposed a different solution than Adler, who proposed a different solution than Aaron Beck and cognitive behavioral psychology. Uh, if you go to UCLA or some other school and get a psychology degree, typically now, because um, the secular psychology world does not believe there's any what's called a grand unifying theory any longer. We actually believe that there's a grand unifying theory, and they think we're, the secular world would say we're arrogant for believing there's a grand unifying theory. But I believe the Bible is the lens, and it helps me understand humans better than any model that's out there. But if you went to UCLA, got a psychology degree, you would probably be taught the top 15 theories, and then you would be told you put together the system that you think will work best for your clients. We call that eclecticism. You mix and match, or syncretism, which means you put belief systems together with what you think, because all truth is relative, right? That's the culture we're living in. There is no absolute truth. It's relative truth. So you put together the belief system that you think will work for your clients. Well, we believe that God has already put together the system for us. There is a grand unifying theory, gut for short, grand unifying theory, and we're worshipers. All of us have been impacted by the fall. No matter where you go, people, tongue, tribe, nation, culture. As Jonathan Edwards said a long, long time ago, back in the 1700s, America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he said, if there's common fruit, don't you think there must be a common root? So we believe there is a grand unifying theory that is going on with with humans, because the fruit looks the same no matter what the cultures are that you look at. Humans struggle with the same desires no matter where you go. So we want to propose a way of salvation. Now, the reason why way of salvation is in quotes is because that's a term actually that Carl Jung used of his own psychotherapy. And I have a quote in your notes. Jungian psychotherapy is a way of healing and a way of salvation. Isn't that interesting? So that's a secular psychologist saying, if you follow my teachings, it will provide salvation for you. It has the power to cure. In addition, it knows the way and has the means to lead the individual to his salvation, to the knowledge of a fulfillment of his personality, etc. What's biblical counseling solution? Praise God. <laughs> What's our wonderful solution? The cross changes everything. So I want to make a couple of comments as we're headed toward the finish line here. A couple of comments about the gospel. Embedded, this is not in your notes, but these type of statements drive me. Embedded in the gospel is the power to change lives, and it will. Embedded in the gospel is the power to change lives, and it will. I get to see it happen regularly. We're seeing marriages be saved, crisis marriages we're seeing people who are, were suicidal change. People who were hooked on substances, we're watching them change because embedded in the gospel is the power to change lives, 
and it will. Another statement about the gospel. The gospel is not just a message to believe. The gospel is a person to follow. So I'm not just trying to get people to believe some facts, sign on the dotted line, now you believe in Jesus. I'm trying to make disciples. The Great Commission says, go into all the world and make disciples. So the gospel is not just a message to believe. It is a message to believe, but it's not just a message to believe. I am inviting people to become followers of my wonderful, merciful Savior who wants to forgive them of their sin and embedded in the gospel then when they become followers of him is the beautiful power to change that person's life. And I love that truth. We, people aren't stuck. They can grow and change. So there's incredible hope instead of I have to carry this label my whole life. No, there's hope. The Lord can set captives free. So the cross changes everything. Matthew 11 is beautiful, isn't it? Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. I think that's an evangelistic passage, by the way. It's not just for Christians. Isaiah 61, that he sets captives free. He heals the brokenhearted. Let's go on to the next S. I already covered that. So what's happening? Worship is being restored. If false worship's the problem, true worship is the solution. Instead of bowing down to the bottle and serving the bottle, running to the bottle as your rock and refuge to deal with the pressures of life, people can learn to run to a wonderful, merciful Savior instead to deal with the pressures of life, etc. So worship is being restored. I already covered all that. Every counseling system then proposes ways to change. We call ours sanctification, so another S. You can use these S's to evaluate books, by the way. So back when, um, oh, what was the famous book for men that came out? No, 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 no. Um, it doesn't matter. Any, no, uh, it doesn't matter. I'll, I can use my illustration anyway. So people kept telling me I need to read this book. And uh, I thought, I don't want to buy that book. Wild at Heart. Yeah. So people kept saying, kept, people giving me copies saying, you need to read this book. You need to read this book. I don't want to read that book. I don't want to buy that book. And, but finally, someone said to me, do you realize one million copies of that book have sold? I went, oh, one million copies. I better read the book. So... But still, I didn't want to buy it. So I went to a Christian bookstore, and I stood in the aisle, and I used my S's to evaluate the book. And I looked at, okay, what does he say the problem is? What's the source of the problem? What does he say the solution is? What does he say the way you grow and change is? Sanctification. And I found out it didn't match a biblical view. I took about 40 minutes standing there in a bookstore using my S's, and I could use it as a tool to discern what is someone writing and what are they proposing as solutions. Um, Skinner, in his behaviorism, he had a different sanctification than we do, but he had a methodology. The medical model, it's very simple. Take your medicine. (laughs) That's how you change, is you take your medicine. What's our view? I think it's beautiful. We are teaching people not just to obey, grudgingly obey, but worship-oriented obedience to the principles of Scripture 
as the Holy Spirit works in the person's life and it's helped by loving one another relationships in the body. Let me go over that again. Here's how I think change happens. As the worship tendencies of my soul change, my wants and desires, I obey because I love the Lord now more than I love what I was loving in my soul. And I'm learning this from the beautiful, inspired, inerrant Word of God. That's, it's alive. And the Holy Spirit is teaching me and working in my life. And people are coming alongside of me and helping me. If that is happening in a local church, you're going to see people changing. And I have the privilege of seeing that happen on a regular basis. Um, so progressive growth and change toward Christ's likeness is what we're after. Last S is every counseling system has support systems. What's our support system? The church. It's beautiful. The local church is wonderful. And it's one reason why I chose to leave a university and go back into a laboratory, which is First Baptist Church of Jacksonville. And please pray for us because we got a big experiment going on. And uh, I don't even know how many thousand people we have. And our whole pastoral staff, ministry staff of almost 40 are all becoming ACBC certified, which is one of my main responsibilities. We have a very active counseling center with a waiting list. And I have right now, I think, 17 counselors who are actively counseling. And we still have a waiting list at First Baptist. And the Lord is changing people. And I love all the stuff I was getting to teach at Masters. I'm getting to see it happen at First Baptist Church in, in Jacksonville because the Lord changes lives. So the local church is wonderful. The typical local church has really has not caught a vision of how much it could impact culture. Uh, if it could just catch a vision of how much we could impact a culture. Uh, for example, just think if you would get send some people to the School of Mediation and teach people how to be mediators and offer free marriage mediation to your community you'd have a waiting list, I guarantee. Uh, I heard Steve Byers say that, so Faith Ministries in Lafayette, Indiana, they always have a waiting list at Faith Ministries of unsaved people waiting to come to a biblical counseling center at Faith Ministries in Lafayette. He said, I'm absolutely convinced that people, I heard him say this in chapel at Masters uh, College at that time, I'm absolutely convinced that people will wait in line to hear the gospel if they think that you can help them. And they're proving it at Faith, Faith Ministries. Uh, that's our dream at First Baptist in Jacksonville. Um, next to the last point, every counseling system has a view of servants of the system. So what's the role of a counselor? Um, how, do you, how do you become certified? So do you, how do you become officially certified? Are you an MFT, a marriage and family therapist? Or are you ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors? Every counseling system has a way to certify its counselors. And then every counseling system has a role. Some, like CBT, Aaron Beck in Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, the counselor is an upbeat coach. Well, what's a biblical counselor? We're loving shepherds and disciples who are coming alongside of people. We have a view of counselors. And then last S, Every counseling system, and this is, I'm a Baptist, so I have to have another S that matches. Every counseling system does sparring. <laughs> we do apologetics. And you just heard a whole presentation on apologetics. 
I'm trying to defend our counseling system. I'm trying to give you hope and confidence that the Bible has a complete counseling system. So every counseling system does that. Every counseling system has journals that they write about their counseling system and write against other counseling systems. And I read you some quotes from a behavioral or no neurobiological journal. Well, other journals will write articles against them. They're doing apologetics. Well, we do apologetics. This whole presentation you just heard was apologetics because I am trying to give a, a what I think is a robust defense of a biblical view of helping people. Where do the labels come from? They come from the DSM. Let me quiz you a little bit. Is there pathology? No. There's no pathology. They are syndromes. That's why they're given the term disorder. They get treated like diseases because they don't know what else to do with them. So that's called mental illness. But they're really not illnesses. They are syndromes. They're disorders. Every counseling system will view how you treat them differently. We have a complete counseling system. Everything that a counseling system says that it is, we have it in biblical counseling. So don't be intimidated by the secular world. Be confident that the Bible does have answers and we can help people. We have a very, very desperate culture. Do you agree with that? Families are falling apart. Opioid crisis. Suicide has been on the rise. Here's some statistics from Jacksonville. and I'll I'll pray for you. Um, We have 300 uh, overdose calls a month in the city of Jacksonville that the ambulances respond to. It has risen by 30% since 2016 and is still rising, the number of emergency calls every month. That's not all the overdose calls. I pray, every other week I pray with a physician from our church because we're both very burdened about the opioid issues in Jacksonville, Florida. And we're praying, that's why we're doing substance abuse training at First Baptist and bringing in Mark Shaw to do that training. He's an emergency room doctor at Memorial Hospital in Jacksonville. He has 10 overdoses a day just in his emergency room. Our culture is desperate. We have answers. Um, The typical church has not yet caught a vision for how it could impact its culture. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for each person here, and I thank you for what you're doing in changing lives. I thank you that embedded in the gospel is the power to change lives and that you do change lives, that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. We commit the rest of the conference to you. May your name be high and lifted up, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at IBCD.org dot o-r-g